All right, so I want to start things off by uh, putting a picture up of my smoking hot wife. Uh, Chris is going to put it up there here in a minute. Okay, so if you did not know, this picture is about four or five years old now, uh, going on five years. Isn't that crazy? Uh, five years old almost, and this is one of me and Emily's engagement pictures. Now, if you did not know about our engagement pictures, it was kind of a crazy, crazy, hectic time because I was in the Philippines, and I got back the day we were taking engagement pictures, so I was just, it was terrible. Uh, like, literally, I was, like, jet-lagged, like, 36 hours. It was awful, but we ended up going to take pictures and we shared these pictures online, and people went crazy. Uh, like, well, I mean, people went crazy. All of our friends were like, oh, my gosh, where's this at? They were just mind-blowing, Donnie. Like, man, where did you go to have these done? And if you did not know, you should know because you're in Livingston County, amen. Uh, if you did not know, this is our beloved Land Between the Lakes. This is not only our beloved Land Between the Lakes, but this is Hematite Lake. Uh, Hematite Lake is a beautiful lake there in LBL. It's about a 20-minute drive from here. And during the fall time of year, not during the summertime, this um, watershed moment is created because the water is coming over the shed for the lake, uh, and it just literally makes a little beautiful waterfall. And of course, you can see the leaves are changing because Emma's like, I want the leaves, yeah, and I want all of this. But as soon as we posted it, I could not, for the life of me, understand why people were losing their minds. Like, it's just Hematite Lake. It's just, you know, the waterfall we always walk on. We always step on the step stones. Like, I've been there, like, you know, 15 times. We always, I go hike there a lot. It's not a big deal to me. But it really caught my attention how for everyone else, what was normal to us was extraordinary to them. Because it was something they hadn't seen before. Because it was something they were experiencing for the very first time. So our friends from Florida, Mike and Amanda, actually, when they flew up here for our wedding, they said, we want to go to that lake. We want to go to that lake. And I was like, for real? Uh, and so we did. Like they said, we want to go, we want to go. Why? Because for us, it had became not spectacular anymore, but it became mundane. It became a normal thing that we just looked at and we just took for granted. And the truth is, guys, if you really, really think about this, the more time goes on, the more complacency eats away at us and makes things normal. It makes things normal so very quickly. And I'm afraid if you were to be honest with yourself, Christmas for most of us has become that normalcy, has become complacent, has become, instead of the extraordinary, it's just stayed ordinary to us. Why? Because December the 25th is Christmas. We've got the 25 days of Christmas on ABC. Uh, we've got this, we've got that. Uh, we've got all these things we do. We watch the Grinch, we watch the elf, we put the tree, and then we've got a rusty, get everything bought for Christmas Day and all this other. It's just a really, 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 really stressful time of year. And in the midst of it, I wonder if many of us were to be honest if we've missed Christmas. Now, it's on the calendar. You don't miss it, per se, but you've, you've missed it because of complacency. Because complacency robs us of everything. I wonder how many times we can complacent in our lives. And we look at the blessings we have, we look at the home we have, we look at the vehicle we have, and we get complacent. Why? Because what once excited us over time duels us. I wonder in marriage how much that happens. I remember the first date me and Emily ever had, because I remember she was wearing, I'm about to get some major points, you can't even hear, amen. She was wearing like a, a teal, like sailboaty shirt. She had white pants on, and she was smoking hot, like smoke show, amen. 
straight up fire. And I remember we went out to eat at Texas Roadhouse. I remember we were going to go walk downtown at the riverfront Paducah. And I'll never forget it why, because we were walking downtown and the boats were there. The ferries were there. And it was like a, they were playing music. And it was just some out of a movie. And it was just some crazy. But I remember that moment. And I would just would catch myself when we were dating just looking at her. Just looking at her for no reason. She'd be like, why are you looking at me? Because I couldn't take enough of her in. I was literally like, man, I just love her. Like I was taking her in. And now there's often times where I go, sometimes even hours, maybe even days. Be honest with yourselves, husbands, where I don't even gaze at her like I used to. Because of complacency. Because it's just normal. I wonder how many of us, when it comes to church, we used to be excited about coming to the Lord's house, but over time that excitement has waned and it's now became a chore instead of a blessing to be here. It's now became something you check off a list instead of something you get to go to. Instead of saying, I get to go to church, you start saying, I have to go to church. I wonder when it comes to Christmas if all that just doesn't come home to sense saying, oh, we've got to do it because it's just Christmas. Because the truth of the matter is, I think we've got to that point as a culture. Among all the Christmas propaganda out there, we've got to this point of missing Christmas, you could say. And so we are going to look at the manger. We're going to look at the first stop this morning. We're going to look at the manger. We're going to look at his timing. Okay, we're going to look at his timing. You'll notice that is, uh, verse, is uh, point number one, his timing. What do I mean by his timing? The thing I love about the Christmas story is that whether you choose to believe it or not, it is historically accurate. That is what's powerful about Christmas. That's what's powerful about Christianity. There's a lot of things you can do with Jesus, but one thing you cannot do with Jesus is ignore Jesus. Because Jesus was a real person at a real time, at a real place, and he was born. There is historical records outside of the Bible that prove he was a real man born in the real time period who did the things he said he did. Like There's other sources besides the Bible that prove that. Jewish historians that had nothing to gain from Jesus' life other than to write a historical record of it because they were against him. They still identify him being born in Bethlehem. They still identify this being a time in history. You do not read that in verse number 1 in Luke's gospel in chapter 2. That guess what? During the time. During that time, church. So this is a time you can go back and look on the map and we know that that happened. We know that he was born at Bethlehem. We know all of these details, and we know all of it. Why? Because it was all part of God's timing. And if you think about timing, when it comes to a birth story, timing is very, very funny if you think about it. Because some of you may remember, too, uh, last Christmas, uh, around this time of year, this is the, of course, this is the 18th. We had Esther on the 22nd. Um, you know, we were literally on baby watch, uh, which means, you know, she was getting closer and closer to our due date, and we were literally going to the doctor every week. And every week, you know, we were get leading up to it. They do a lot of procedures to make sure everything's going good. And your doctor looks at you, and he says, what? You don't need to travel. Uh, you don't need to go anywhere. I don't want you going to Atlanta. I want you to stay here just in case something happens. I'm going to be on call. You have a lot of those talks because as much as we would like to, when it comes to a normal birthing situation, you've got no control. You've got absolutely no control of what happens. You've got no control over when they're going to arrive. You've got no control. And so I love in the text there how in that verse it says, and it came time, Amen. Like literally it says, and it came time for them to deliver. Like there wasn't all those appointments like we had. There wasn't all those things. Like literally they just had the baby wherever they were. 
And that the Lord of all of eternity had made it in such a way that just in time, when they were away from their home, they were away from their OB, amen, they were far off. I still can't fathom how Joseph got Mary on a donkey or a lamb or any kind of mobile uh, animal, amen, to get her to Bethlehem, 80 miles, nine months pregnant. Bravo, amen, uh, because I can't fathom how he did that, but he did. And somehow, way, shape, form, or fashion, it came time. For Jesus to be born when they were in the exact place, the exact time, the exact moment that God had predicted it would happen in eons past. Because his timing was perfect. His timing was perfect. And let me tell you, in the Christmas story, there are a lot of things we, can we just be honest with each other, we make up. We make up a lot of things about the Christmas story. Like, you know things we make up that the Bible doesn't say precisely? Three wise men. The Bible doesn't say there are three wise men. It never says a number. It says there were three gifts, but it never says there was a number. We kind of put that in, thinking, we'll just slide that one past the Lord. Just make that up. Also, can we all agree the innkeeper gets a bad rep? Like every Christmas story, even maybe tonight, I don't even know, I haven't talked to Heather, amen, but always the innkeeper's like this grudgy old man who's like, there's no room. This seat's taken, amen, Forrest Gump style. Uh, like, you know what I mean? Like, literally, the, like, he's always getting a bad rep, but that, the text here doesn't really play into that. The text said there was no room. And you might be thinking, why was there no room? Because there was a census. There was no room because everybody who had been born in the house of David had to come back to that city because every hotel was booked in advance. This is way before Expedia. It's way before Hotel.com. You didn't have to talk to Captain Obvious. You didn't have to talk to anybody. Why? Because there was no pre-ahead booking. You had to just arrive. And I don't know about you, when I think about the man traveling across country with his pregnant wife, it probably went from a two-hour trip to a several-hour trip. Why? Because she had to pee every 30 seconds. Amen? Let's just be real. And all the while, that buildup and that leading, they get there and guess what? The inn is occupied. And so oftentimes you would go live with your in-laws. You would go stay at your family house. And so even the manger itself, when we read about where they were born, I don't know about you, but every Christmas card I've ever seen, like they're in a nicely chiseled cave. Like it looks like somebody came through and rounded off all the raw edges and there's a big star above it. There's all kinds of lights. Uh, they're hanging down, making it look all nice. That's not what the Bible would paint the nativity to be. Because more than likely, they probably had Jesus in the room off of the main living quarters of the house where the animals stayed because animals were kept in close to the family. Why? Not only for their protection, but also for warmth. So the main room where the family slept was a massive big room, and then a smaller room was off to the side where the animals slept. And it's almost historically accurate. They agree that, guess what, instead of them staying in the main family room with the rest of the family, there was no room even in there. So they had to sleep in the stable, per se, the off room off to the side. But the Lord's timing was perfect. The Lord's timing was perfect. You think about how much time and effort goes into a birthing process. You think about this. As soon as you have a baby, you do an announcement. You do an announcement. You say, hey, we've had a child. We've had a baby. You send out cards, you do all this stuff. Even though we've been watching a little bit of the royal documentary, even they, have, they stand with their baby before the doors there in England uh, where they, that people see the baby. It's a big announcement. But for this announcement, there was no cards. There was nobody who knew, but there was a heavenly host who said the king has been born. The king has been born because God's timing was perfect. Perfect timing. It didn't seem like a good time for them, but guess what? It was God's perfect timing. Some of y'all are thinking, yeah, Pastor Nick, when's it going to get good? It's going to get good. Stay with me. Stay with me here. 
Not only is his timing important, but his way was important. His way of coming into existence, you could say. His way of coming, when I say coming into existence, I mean entering our existence. Because God's always existed. When I say coming into the physical nature of his creation, his way of doing it was extremely powerful. Look what it says here in Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. You think about that, that of all the ways Jesus could have came, he decided to come his way. He decided not only to come his way, but when I say his way, I mean the Father's way. And the Father orchestrated it, not for him to be born in Jerusalem, in the king's palace, but for him to be born in the king's hometown, in Bethlehem, to in amongst the poor. That literally God orchestrated all these things. And so it's kind of a funny question when the wise men come saying, where is he who is born king of the Jews? They show up first at Jerusalem, and then they've got to go somewhere else. Why? Because they've got the wrong city, Amen. Because guess what? MapQuest failed them, amen? Uh, Because at the end of the day, they show up at the wrong place at the right time to get to the right place at the right time, amen? So think about how powerful this is that his way of coming was not like we expected. Who in history past would think that God would send a deliverer and it would be God himself? Wrapped in flesh. Who would think that? Because since Genesis 3, guess what? They've been looking for a deliverer. Like Eve, as soon as she had born Seth, you know what she thought? This is the one. As soon as as she had her next child, she looked at Seth and said what? This is him. This is the one who is going to break the serpent's neck. This is the one who's going to bruise his heel. This is the one who is going to deliver us. But guess what? Seth died. And then Noah comes about. Guess what? And what is even, you go back and read the uh, Genesis text, it says that Noah was like, what, going to be the savior to the world, going to be the savior for the people. They thought Noah was going to be the one who would deliver them. But guess what? Noah failed them. Then Abraham comes, Father Abraham. Guess what? Abraham dies. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all of the founding fathers of the faith, guess what? They all are not the savior we were looking for. Then you got Moses, then you got Joshua, and then it keeps going. You got David, you got Solomon, you got all those Jehoshaphat, amen, Roboam, Jeroboam, amen. You got all the Boam boys. You got everybody you can possibly fathom. You got Eli the priest. You got all these people, and they die, 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 die. They never live up. And they thought, when is God going to send us somebody in the power of Moses? When is God going to send us somebody in the power of Elijah? And that's where Malachi leaves office. We're looking for Elijah. We're looking for Moses. We're looking for somebody. God has sent the messenger. But nobody, church, nobody in all of the text ever imagined that God would come. That God would be the hero. Nobody thought that God would take on flesh. Why? Because they thought God wouldn't do that because it would be beneath him. It would be below him. It would be something that we can't even fathom. Nobody ever in human history would ever think to make this up because it's so outlandish, so scandalous, that nobody could even fathom the thought that God would become a man. Nobody, church. Nobody thinks about that because you think of human history. There are all kinds of stories where where humans become God, but there's never a story where God becomes man. Never a story like that. And he didn't just become man for a moment. 
Think about that church. Think about that. He could have. If God wanted to, God can do anything. Nothing is impossible with God. That's what Gabriel said to Mary all those years ago. But think about this. If God wanted to, God could have showed up, just appeared out of nowhere on that Good Friday. He could have said, hey, I am the Savior. You need to crucify me. And he could have magically just made all those people take him and crucify him. He could, have made, he could have done everything that he wanted to do outside of the way he did it, if he chose to do it. But that's not the way of God. You know the way of God? The way of God is turn that crockpot on low. Turn that crockpot on low to where eight, ten hours that baby just sits. That baby sits so long that if you were to walk by every minute, look in, nothing would change. Walk by every man, no one changed. But over the course of thousands of years, what does God do? God is building the stage and building the stage and building the stage, saying what? Emmanuel is coming, and you don't even know it. And so then when Jesus arrives, nobody saw it coming. Did Mary know? She didn't. Nobody knew. Nobody expected God to come in behind enemy lines in the way he did. And that Jesus would take on flesh... And that Jesus would not only take on flesh, but he would remain in flesh. And it would be glorified flesh for all of eternity. To know that at this very moment, church, which I'm going to hit on next week, big and hard, amen. At this very moment, there is a God-man who sits by the right hand of God. And his name is Jesus. The second person of the Trinity came and dwelt among us. Look what it says there, that he came and he died a death obedient to the Father, even through death on a cross. Is what Philippians says, what Paul says. If that don't get your wood going, I've got something else for you, church. Let me get you an old theologian you probably never heard of. Let me get you R.G. Lee, amen. You know he's a bad man, but you got two, two names, amen. R.G. Lee, amen. It sounds like a really bad theologian. And I'll tell you what he says about it. Listen to this. Listen to how powerful this is. Christ, who in eternity rested motherless upon the Father's bosom, bosom, amen. What a word. Bring it back. In time rested fatherless upon a woman's bosom. Glasp, grasping the ancient of days had become the infant of days. Woo. What deep descent from heights of glory to the depths of shame, from the wonders of heaven to the wickedness of earth, from the exaltation to humiliation, from the throne to the tree, from dignity to debasement, from worship to wrath, from the halls of heaven to the nails of earth, from the coronation of the curse, from the glory, from the place, from the glory of place. In Bethlehem, humility and in glory in their extremes were joined, born in a stable, cradled in a cattle trough, wrapped in swaddling clothes of poverty. No room for him will be made, but no room for him was made, but he made a room for all. No place for him will be made. I mean, O depth of humiliation of the Creator, born of the creature, woman. But in his descent was the dawn of mercy. Because we cannot ascend to him, he descended us. You better, church, you better come alive, amen. amen. Did you hear that? Like how powerful that is. Like deep theologically. I'm going to read you some things again. Once again, from worship to wrath, from the halls of heaven to the nails of earth. Think about how powerful that is. If we could wrap our minds around, let me tell you, church, the greatest miracle in the Bible is not the resurrection. The greatest miracle in the Bible is the manger. That God would join us. Because if you think about it, if God was to join us, then what is death? 
If God can make life out of nothing, if God can, do, if Genesis is correct, God makes life out of nothing, and He can take life from nothing in Genesis and make His Son at, without using a father, amen, to literally bring, bring life from a virgin. If God can do that, then what is death? What is death to God? Nothing. I love that powerful, once again, so good, church. Look what it says there. The ancient of days have become the infant of days. That Jesus had never needed a mother until that moment. Think about that. There is no mother in the Trinity. The Father's always existed. Remember, this is deep theologian stuff here. This is deep Trinitarian stuff here. The Father always has to be eternal, and the Son always has to be eternal. Why? Because to say the Son has not always been eternal is to say the Father has not always been eternal, because you cannot be a father without a son. Stay with me? So it's really important you understand that. So for the first time in all of eternity, for the first time in all of eternity, God needed a mother. Wrap your mind around that. But that was his way. That's God's way. And let me just tell you this. Ooh, I'm about to get on a high horse here. About to get on my soapbox, amen. About to get on it. Y'all ain't ready for it. It's going to be countercultural. Y'all ain't ready for it. But his way is the best way. You know how I know it's the best way? Because God, if he chose to, he could have just been like, you know what? I'm a strong, strong feminist. And Mary, she don't need no man. You know, she don't need no man. And my son, he don't need no earthly father. But you have to remember, oh, church, you got to remember. God is a God of design. What do I mean by God is a God of design? He would not have his son born in an institution outside of his design because that would go against the very nature of God. So what did God do? God has his son born into a family. And in that family, theologically beautifully, he shows us the power of adoption by Joseph coming in and saying, guess what, this is not my child, but it's my responsibility. You know what I love about Joseph? He's one of the most overlooked characters in the Bible, in my opinion. He has no lines in the Bible. I don't even know that or not. He didn't speak. He's a mute. Doesn't say anything. But you know what's crazy? His presence is all throughout the Bible. Can you think about how much weight that is that you're going to be the earthly father of the Son of God? How much weight that would be? I'm nervous just having Esther, amen? Think about how much weight that would be. But guess what? Joseph was the man for the task. Because God has designed, stay with me, church. I'm not saying this in a bad way here. I'm trying to really get you to understand this. God has designed for the proper and the best way for children to be raised is in a home with a mom and a dad. And you might be passionate. We can't make it work. We cannot make it work. We've had to separate. We've had to get divorced. I understand that in those situations. But I would caution you, mom and dad. I would very, very strongly encourage you, mom and dad, to always remember you might have been married temporarily, but you're always parents for, all of turn, for, for the rest of your life. Because you have your DNA walking with you. That's half your DNA and half their DNA. And it's a blessing. And so if you can, work it out for the best you can, for the better of the children. Why? Because that's the best environment for kids to be raised in. Is a mom and a dad. I'm all about 
women's rights. I'm all about, you know, women are strong. Don't get me wrong. Women are strong, 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 strong. I'm pro-women and I'm pro-man, but I'm also I'm pro-family. Because that's the way God has designed things to be. And if you don't believe me, this is why God always says that, guess what, we should not have uh, sexual relations outside of marriage. Why? Because we all know what causes children, it's, you know, those types of things. And what I mean by that is I mean that, guess what, if you don't have sex outside of marriage, you don't have that problem in the first place. That makes sense? And I don't say that in a downgrade way. I'm saying that in a grace-filled way to let you know that that's the way God has designed things to be. It's for our good and for His glory. So if children are born, guess what? They're protected and they're taken care of. All right, that's enough of that. That's enough of that. I love you here. And if you're here and you've, you've made mistakes, get in line, amen. If you're here saying, man, I, I didn't do things right. You know, I got good news for you. The sun came up this morning, amen. The sun came up this morning. And you'll be like, well, I didn't do things right yesterday, but I'm going to start doing things right today. Amen? All right, let's keep going. I got one more, and I'm about done with you. We've got his timing. We've got his way. And last but not least, we've got his purpose. If I was to ask you why, did Jesus, why was Jesus born, I'd hear all kinds of answers. Some of y'all would be like, well, he was born so the little drummer boy could come. Uh, you know, he was born so we could have Christmas carols. He was born so we could drink hot chocolate. Like, if you ask any kid, like, hey, why in the world was he born? You would probably say, well, he was born for this, he was born for that. If you ask Jesus why he was born, he would say this. In John, I mean, Luke, I mean, Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Look what he says here. And to give his life as a ransom for many. To give his life as a ransom for many. From the womb to the tomb, Jesus knew every millisecond of his earthly existence, the cross was looming. He knew every step of the way that every road led to Jerusalem. He knew every step of the way that every nail he drove in his father's carpentry shop that one day those very nails would pierce his hands. He knew that every time he passed by a funeral, he knew that every time, guess what? His death was looming. Because we cannot look in the manger in the rearview mirror without first looking at the cross ahead of us. We can't do it, church. John Piper had this to say. Once again, a theologian you should get yourself well acquainted with. John Piper said this about the Incarnation. You listen to this, church. The Incarnation is the preparation of nerve endings for the nails. This is what the Incarnation is. The Incarnation is the preparation of a brow for thorns to be pressed through. He needed to have a broad back so that there was a place for the whip. He needed to have feet so that there would be a place for the spikes. He needed to have a side so that there would be a place for the spear to go in. He needed cheeks, fleshy cheeks, so that Judas could have a place to kiss and there would be a place to spit that would run down for the soldiers to spit on him. He needed a brain and a spinal column with no vinegar and no ghoul so that the exquisitions, exquisitiveness of the pain could be fully felt. felt. You see, church, he needed a body so that his body could be broken for us. 
And so from the moment that Jesus stepped out of eternity and entered the infant, I mean, entered, so we're here from, from fi, infinity to finite. In that moment, he was a baby that was born to die. He was a baby that was planned from eternity past to eternity future. Guess what? The Lamb of God would come, the Lamb of God would be born, and the Lamb of God would live a perfect life to redeem sinners. And the Lamb of God would die a death that we deserve so that me and you could spend eternity with the Lamb of God. He needed all that. And once again, God could have just made Jesus appear out of nowhere. But what did he do? He did things the right way. He did things the slow way. He did things our way. Not our way. I take that back. He did things his way, which is like our way that we think it is. Where Mary was found to be pregnant, that Jesus grew in, new, in that ambiotic fluid. He grew for nine months. All the while, the bump got bigger. I love that, that verse in, uh, in Matthew's gospel. It's very funny if you've never read it before. It says that Joseph saw that she, she was with child. I think it's a f- funny verse. Why? Because all of a sudden, maybe they're hanging out. He's like, she got a little bump. Because you think about how they wore in that culture. You know, he probably wouldn't see it for a long time. But he, she had been found with child. That's what the text says. And think how God, that's how God does things, Slowly. Over time, like peeling wallpaper, amen? It's a meticulous process of just one little strand at a time. Tell you all, everything's a sermon, amen? And you ought to thank God that God's patient with us. He's patient enough to be born a baby. He's patient enough to live among us. He's patient enough be a savior who's well acquainted with our grief. He's patient. He could have saved us in an instant. But instead, he sent a child. And why did he do it? What would drive the God of the universe to do such a thing? Your children know. You forgot that, but your children, they know. Because it's as simple as this. For God so loved the world. Hopefully we can read it together. For God so loved the world, <laughs> he sent his only begotten son. You're going to put it, okay, Chris, no big deal. I was going to read the whole verses to you. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish. But verse number 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people have loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light. It does not come to the light, 
lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. For God so loved the world that he did all that for me and you. We'll possess a God to do it because he loves you, church. And it gets even sweeter than that. He didn't love the best version of you. He doesn't love this cleaned up version of you, the good looking you right now. The Bible says while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, a good friend, he'll die for his friends, right? But our God, our God died for his enemies. Church, he died for his enemies. The gospel, listen to this, the gospel changes a courtroom in a criminal case into an adoption ceremony. To where the judge himself looks at the convicted party and says, you have done wrong, you have broken a law, and the judge looks at him and says, I forgive you and I love you and I want to adopt you. What scandalous grace is that? But in truth, that's the manger. Because it is the manger, ladies and gentlemen, that leads to the cross. It is the cross that leads to the tomb. It is the tomb that leads to resurrection. It is the resurrection that leads to the ascension. And it is the ascension that leads to the second coming. The first time he came, nobody saw him. Everybody missed him, amen? The next time he comes, everybody will see him. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. The first time he came as a lamb, the second time he's coming as a lion. The first time he came as the prince of peace, the next time he's coming as the Lord of lords. The first time he came as a baby, helpless and innocent as a child, the next time he's coming as a man ready to bring vengeance. And let me remind you of that church. The baby didn't stay a baby. But he grew in strength and wisdom. And he did all of that. Why? So that me and you could become a child of God. So I pray we not get complacent with this story. I pray as we look over Luke chapter 2 this week, I pray as we look up these carols, I pray as we go through the motions of Christmas. I pray that the manger not become ordinary to you. Because I want to remind you that once again, if we miss the manger, then the cross is empty of its power. I'll say that again. If you miss the manger, that God is the one who died for us, then the cross means nothing. Because it's only that Jesus died on the cross that makes the cross so powerful. And it's only that that Jesus was God who wanted to dwell with us our Emmanuel, our God, who is with us.